Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the geek show that likes to look at the good, the bad, and the ghoulish of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers through a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. And this month, it's Halloween month, so we've got a month of horror ahead of you. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a short filmmaker, and I also write for The Geek Show, of course, uh, as well as Byline Times and We Are Cult. And I've been joined by... Robin Adams, who is actress, writer, all-round she freak, and the person you don't want to see on a pop screen episode, because it always bodes well. <laughs> yes, yeah, we've, we've reviewed two horror movies so far, and indeed two horrible movies so far. <laughs> indeed, uh, I will never forget Embrace of the Vampire, <laughs> as long uh, yeah. as I live. I I don't think I would have inflicted that on someone if I'd have watched it beforehand. <laughs> this is this is what happens when you get me in to do episodes. But if, on the one hand, when I'm brought on, I have a slight feeling, you know, oh, oh, this is going to be something bad. But there's also the fact that, you know, something's going to go down <laughs> if I watch this film. <laughs> Well, this, this time I would say it's a it's a better class of trash, right? It is a better class of trash. Uh, the the thing about the comeback is I really there are things about the comeback which make me really want to love it. Mm. I really want to adore this film, and the things which I love about it aren't in it enough. It's it's a more simple kind of. Yeah, it's not like a thing where the entire foundation of the film is misguided, which is certainly the case with Embrace (laughs) of the Vampire. Oh, there is, believe it or not, there is a cinematic parallel between Embrace of the Vampire and uh, The Comeback, which we will undoubtedly get onto later when discussing one of the weirder aspects of this weird film. Mm, yeah, actually, <laughs> yes, I think I've just worked out what it is. Yeah. Oh yeah, there yeah. Are, things happen in the comeback. Choices are made, but uh, I, I'd wanted to do this for a while, uh, and I know you were particularly excited to do this because it's the Pete Walker oh, yes. film, right? It's Pete Walker, yes, uh, director of such titles as House of Whipcord. Uh, House of Mortal Sin, and one of my personal favourites uh, of pretty much all British horror, not just of the 70s, uh, Frightmare, starring Sheila Keefe, who is also in this. She is, yes. She it... definitely is in this. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, well, I, I always used to get Pete Walker mixed up with Norman J. Warren, and I've seen a lot more Norman J. Warren films now, and I don't make that mistake anymore. Um I... I mean, they're kind of 
part of that same kind of wave of yes. kind of 70s British horror, because there's an interesting thing which will undoubtedly be brought up later, is the fact that in the 70s, British horror had this massive boom, like mm. this unprecedented boom. Uh, and there's something between like the, the Hammer, the Amicus, the kind of Gothic stuff, and kind of the precursor to what would lead to the slasher films of the 1980s. Yes. So towards the end of the 70s, uh, mid to late 70s, you start to see this pleasing kind of Grand Guignol combination uh, of kind of slightly rougher edged, uh, but still gothic and stylish British horrors, uh, mm. which kind of up the gore, up the sleaze, up the salaciousness. And there's kind of this nice middle ground between these two things. It promises some brilliant wave to come. And it never happened because Thatcher era Britain was like devoid of horror films and pretty much killed off the entire UK horror scene until like the 2000s. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind Absolutely. of, it's a promise of a wave of horror we never got. And it's... No, you, you cannot overestimate what the video recording act did to the british film industry i mean it, it wiped out horror movies in this country for about a generation uh i did a horrified article a few years back about the british films that appeared on the video nasties lists prepared by the department for public prosecutions and they're interesting because you realise that exploitation directors in the 60s and 70s were kind of like the artist in exile. You know, people like James Kennel, Clark and Warren and Walker were making various cuts of these films with the knowledge that the one that they thought was good, the one that they thought was scary enough, would probably be for export only because anything sufficiently strong would not be permitted by the BBFC. And it's it's sort of sad and it's sort of ridiculous. I mean, there were a lot of artists creating work for an overseas market in 1970s Europe, but the ones in Eastern Europe were writing about re-education camps and the ones in <laughs> Britain were writing sort of, come on, you don't get much of them for a pound, do you? <laughs> because they're a fundamentally unserious country. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> I, I, I think unserious is a word which could be used at numerous points in numerous <laughs> Pete Walker films, uh, apart from maybe House of Whipcord, which is a horrifying indictment of uh, capital punishment and the prison system. Uh, <laughs> House of Whipcord is the one where the, the villain is a judge, right? Am I remembering yes. that? Uh, yeah. I believe so. Played by Sheila Keith, if I'm not wrong. <laughs> Horse, yeah. I have not actually seen that one. I hate to admit, but I've only seen Frightmare and The Comeback. And Frightmare is phenomenal and also really, really unserious. I love reading people's reviews of uh, Frightmare saying it's one of the darkest, grimmest, nastiest horror films of the 70s. And you watch it and it's the good life, but they eat people. It's. <laughs> It's really, really quirky and whimsical and strangely lighthearted. I think that disturbs people. Uh, yeah. But I just think it's strangely sweet. And Sheila Keith really makes that film. Uh, she's an 
absolute horror icon. I, she should be on the levels of Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and the likes, but she just didn't have many roles. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I thought she was great in this, certainly. Oh, I yeah. think she was having the time of her life in this. She's the highlight of this, and I will... I will gush about her performance in this later, because regardless of my thoughts otherwise on the comeback, Sheila Keith is phenomenal. <laughs> well, it's what it's one of those things. I'll put my cards on the table. I think the film is fine. You know, it's it's no great shakes. It's not as good yeah. as Walker's best films, but you know, I enjoyed it. I had fun. It's probably it probably would not be something that I would hold in my memory for a long time were it not for the fact that everyone in this film is so fascinating yes. and it gets to, it gets to the point where even like the one scene bit part like the nurse who comes to uh, administer to the hero when he's uh, had a breakdown is played by June Chadwick from This Is Spinal Tap yeah. I, I don't know what her deal is <laughs> Not very comforting, is she? No, uh, she's, to be fair, fairly accurate in the sense that she really isn't paid enough to, to be <laughs> to have the nicest bedside manner. But she's, it, it's quite funny that there's just a nurse working at this hospital who constantly, in spite of these long shifts on the NHS, looks like a supermodel. Yeah. <laughs> She looks like a supermodel or the girlfriend of a rock star who redesigns their tour with disastrous effects. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, she's she's really unpleasant. She just uh, but she's also so perky. She just stands by his bedside. Yeah. Going, oh, you went mental, didn't you? <laughs> I feel that. You see, I feel that. I I highly, highly dig that. Yeah. I think it's probably quite accurate as to mental health care in 1970s Britain. (laughs) Undoubtedly. But we we should uh, talk first before we get into the unexpectedly stacked cast that this film has. We should talk first about Nick Cooper, played by Jack Jones, because he's a very odd central figure for this kind of movie, in my opinion. I mean, the film was made to... There's obvious points where you can see the film was made to try and basically jumpstart an acting career for him, Mm, which never really took off. Uh, Mm. The reasons why are slightly visible in the film, uh, (laughs) particularly because they decide, you know what we're going to do with this introductory film to the screen, have a movie where he plays a washed up pop star. (laughs) And basically just like, show how this guy, show how this guy has just completely failed to get work. (laughs) Uh, And I have to note that, yes, I have been thinking of this film and this podcast episode for a while, because it's it's the 70s proto-slasher starring the man who did the theme for The Love Boat. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot overstate how that's a thing. And speaking of which, seeing as there's been a fantasy island horror movie, and sure, yeah. who cares if it sucks, how about a Love Boat horror film? Definitely. It can happen. Yeah. It can still happen. I know that the Reverend Peter Laws uh, at 40 and Times is calling out for uh, a Love Boat horror film. I know that he is <laughs> calling for it, so the audience is out there. So I think we need that. 
we could we absolutely do and you could get jack jones in it he's still you alive could get jack still jones in it. pops up from time to time um his his acting career is sort of it's kind of hilarious, but I also get the vibe from him that he would find it funny as well. Like he was in a disaster movie called Condominium, which for a start, <laughs> now. not a good title. <laughs> if your disaster movie has condom in the title, it's probably <laughs> probably not an advisable choice. But even worse, it came out in the exact same year as Airplane. Uh, which, oh no! Yeah, <laughs> but Jack Jones also has a cameo in Airplane Two, which I think is very sporting of him because he must have been at least slightly pissed off by that. <laughs> Indeed, he's he's a as you say a washed up pop singer, and he's he is as the title suggests on the comeback trail by the way i found this we were discussing i found this on amazon prime under the title encore so i'm not sure if don't call it a comeback (laughs) yes call it encore because we changed the title (laughs) i don't know why they changed the title for amazon prime it's i assume this is some old print that they couldn't be bothered to check because what I was going to say, whatever you've watched it on, it is undoubtedly better than the 94th generation VHS <laughs> copy shit that the world's richest man has uploaded to his website in Certainly. flagrant contempt for his customers. Indeed. But yeah, uh, I don't know if I've watched the same cut as you, but I find it kind of interesting that part part of this is going for a, a sort of archaic kind of theatrical gothic of the type that was briefly big after whatever happened to Baby Jane. It also wants to make you think that maybe this is a ghost story. And yet the, <laughs> the hero is a character who is so modern it's not just that he's a pop star it's that he's a pop star who's been in the game for long enough to have had career slowdowns and revivals which is the sort of thing that was only just starting to happen by the 70s he's he's quite an odd main character yeah. uh, I've, got, I've got to say he it's the, the concept of the film is rather strange because Sure, you've got this thoroughly, thoroughly modern man who seems to lack charisma on a level where he just blends into the background. No offense to Jack Jones, but he's not exactly star material here. He looks the part, but there's yeah. something about him. Uh, and they just say, let's plonk him in a countryside mansion uh, and <laughs> hit him with ghosts in the middle of the night, do the haunting on him. Uh, and yeah. his reaction to it is mild bemusement half the time. Uh, like fear <laughs> that takes the form, fear and a breakdown into actual insanity, which mostly take the form of Less of a big reaction to seeing what appears to be the Spongebob chocolate lady made out of burger meat in a wheelchair, uh, <laughs> which is a real scare, but I've, seen, but I have seen in the film, there is a moment where he just opens his bedroom door at night and sees some kind of meat woman in yes. a wheelchair. <laughs> that is unfortunately true, yes. Um... 
But yeah, I, I suppose in his defence, being in a haunted mansion, uh, but OK Computer was recorded in a purportedly haunted mansion. That's just a bit of Indeed. pop trivia for you there. I just thought I'd throw that in. But uh, being in cool. a purportedly haunted mansion cannot be creepier than being involved in the 1970s British record industry. And boy, Definitely every not. time we go to the supporting cast, you see evidence of that. The the amount of, of characters who are just outright predatory in this film yes. is is really, really deeply concerning. Like, oh, here's my mate Harry. Oh, he's a good lad. He is not a good lad. He attempted to molest a woman in an elevator. Harry is incredible. Uh, played by oh, Pete yeah. Turner, by the way, the actor, uh, the Lipudlian actor who had an affair with Gloria Graham in her later years. The film, uh, film stars don't die in Liverpool is based on his life, but at one point, he has the extraordinary line, that's the first thing I know, it's about a woman, her breasts. <laughs> it's such a normal line. It's such, <laughs> such a normal, normal line. I don't know how to describe this character. I'm going to name drop here. Because he, look, be he looks like God. a combination. He looks like a combination of Dylan Moran and Quentin Tarantino. And he <laughs> speaks in an accent which is entirely implaceable and changes every second. That's true, I, yes. I, he confuses me on a fundamental level. He's also deeply suspicious in a way which lead you to believe he's a murderer and he probably hmm. is just not one relevant to the film because he's just such a nasty individual <laughs> like he's spiteful yeah he's absolutely horrible uh I, th I think you're right about that accent too i've i've seemed to have retconned that into a sort of estuary accent in my head because in my head this is like Maybe if Dudley Moore's Hollywood career didn't take off, he could play this as like an extension of Derek from Derek and Clive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel that. Yeah, uh, he, he is horrible. I, I kept thinking of that <laughs> uh, future armor line where Zach, Zach Brannigan says, I find that the most erotic part of a woman is the boobies. <laughs> Indeed. He also probably doesn't have very good hygiene uh, because mm. he takes no issue to a stream of dead flies coming through a keyhole. <laughs> and speaking of the keyhole, we need to talk about the apartment. I think it's time to talk about the apartment. Uh, Let, let's go for the apartment. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The, so, Jack Jones is living in uh, a haunted mansion. He's yeah. not living in his old apartment. Uh, which is this lavish, like, peak of 70s style and fashion apartment, which yeah. is up an elevator in what appears to be an abandoned recording studio uh, in, like, this mass of, like, this colossal derelict warehouse. And I'm <laughs> deeply confused. And that is the parallel to Embrace of the Vampire, because it's not too far off uh, the crumbling student house <laughs> that oh, the vampire yeah. lives in, in that. I, I was thinking you were aiming at something else, which I think we'll end up discussing. Uh, by Undoubtedly. <laughs> but, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's like the, the building is clearly set to be demolished until this one last pop star moves out <laughs> of his apartment. There's like, it's a bizarre building. There's like a paper skeleton Halloween decoration on one of the doors. There it is, uh, yeah. But, but I... 
I don't know if anybody listening will know of this, I've about to think at the time of recording. I sent this to you, uh, Graham, specifically because I knew I would bring it up. Uh, I may have oh. sent it to you on Twitter, so you may not have seen it. But there's oh, yeah. this Sorry. video which has been doing the rounds uh, mm. of a man walking to his apartment, uh, but he just walks into what appears to be a maze of like derelict <laughs> hallways until he reaches his apartment. Uh, and I couldn't stop thinking of this man moving through the back rooms to get to his house uh, because <laughs> that's exactly what happened in the comeback. <laughs> that's exactly the layout of that. Are you suggesting that Pete Walker has in fact invented liminal horror 40 years early? I would sincerely debate that one. I'm pretty certain there are other examples, but I I may have to give the credit there. But it's yeah. just the thing which concerns me so much is how well kept the apartment looks for most of mm. the beginning, and then you see uh, that uh, in the opening scene. Oh, my favorite detail! I'm. This is what I was getting to. It's my possibly my favorite atmospheric detail to the film. Uh, yeah. is that. Obviously, the apartment was filmed in a completely different building to the derelict <laughs> building. But you can hear this weird industrial creaking whenever the scenes are in that building. And it's right. really weird and settling. And it reminds you of the fact that that's out there. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that subtlety may have passed me by because of Jeff Bezos. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that that is fascinating. I mean, I may have watched an alternate cut because I watched the one with the title The Comeback. The one uh, so the correct title. The correct yes. title. And it's basically I don't know where to go from here because there is so much about this film and I don't know where to start. Do we well, start think, with Dead uh, Wife? We start with <laughs> Sheila Keith. Who knows? Because that—that's the opening scene, isn't it? Uh, his wife goes back to this mysterious apartment to pick up some of his stuff. His estranged uh, wife, and uh, she is murdered by <laughs> someone who will immediately elicit the reaction from you. With I don't know who's disguised. But that is obviously a disguise. Yeah, and it's it's quite interesting because uh, basically, concept of this film, uh, I will describe this. We have already touched on it, but I will describe the weirdness of this film's concept. Mm -hmm. It's washed up pop star records a new record in a haunted house. Uh, meanwhile, seemingly unrelated, uh, someone in a hag mask with a scythe is killing people at his old apartment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> seemingly <laughs> entirely unrelated. Uh, what I would never expect to happen in the opening to this film, if I hadn't already had an inkling from one of the posters, is that mm. suddenly uh, the wife gets jumped by someone dressed in a shawl with like a hag mask, uh, yep. who just outright murders her with a scythe whilst like screaming, uh, and there's it's kind of brilliant. There's kind of something nightmarish. It's the combo of kind of gothic with the kind of not yet formed slasher genre. It's yes. it kind of comes together in this 
delightful Grand Guignol way, which never... I, I wish we got that 80s horror boom in the UK, because yeah. this, we could have seen more of that. And then the, the old lady mostly doesn't do much murdering for the rest of it. Well, that is the thing, actually. That is one of the things that I think is quite savvy about this, as you say, very odd plot structure where things are happening and there is a hero and they're both in separate places. But, you know... Because of the motive that we find out at the end, there can only really be like two main murders in this film, which isn't a lot for a horror film, and it isn't a lot for a horror film directed by Pete Walker. But the fact that this is happening somewhere where the hero isn't means that he can let the body sort of lie there undiscovered and decompose and get a really quite startling amount of gore out of this one killing. It's truly disgusting. It's it really to is. the point that when the body is eventually discovered, there's like rats chewing on it. It's like, mm. ugh. It's, it's proper, proper, proper nasty. And as I mentioned, there were streams of dead flies coming through the keyhole. Yeah, that's just vile. Which, uh, uh, as you say, Nick's awful friend considers <laughs> completely unremarkable. He's just going in and going, "Oh yeah, that's like when I have a dead woman in my flat." Yeah, I get. He turns up well. and opens the door and says, "Oh, something smells." <laughs> and I'm like, "No <laughs> shit! <laughs> How have you not noticed by this point?" Yes. But it's also noticeable that the body on the stairs of the wife is noticeably a more convincing effect uh, than the abject, <laughs> the abject horror that is the Burgermead woman, which I can. Yeah, <laughs> I have deal with that. I don't know. It's never explained what she is. Yeah. I, I guess the, the logic of it is that Nick is having visions that are supposed to lead him to discover his dead wife. And maybe the burger meat woman is just there to say to him, <laughs> look, fuck all, if you don't get a move on, I'm going to look like this by the time you find me. Yeah, I, I could refer to her as the hamburger lady because we're doing a music podcast like a frame of Robbing Gristle reference. However, <laughs> I've decided not to because it came in my head and I'm thinking, should I? Shouldn't I? Either way, she's made from burger meat. There is no yeah. other way to say it. She's got goofy dentures. <laughs> it cuts, it flash cuts between uh, Jack Jones's face and from Burger face. <laughs> and it's it's the most confoundingly strange thing. And of course, it's like the Kulashov effect, isn't it? It's like oh, yeah. if you cut between Jack Jones's face and this Lord of Old Meat, we <laughs> might be able to persuade you he's having an emotional reaction to something. <laughs> yeah. And of course, we haven't talked about the people who own the house. Uh, yeah. Ah, which, yeah, M- Mr. and Mrs. B, which is. That's only, what they're called. Yeah, only the surface of what is weird about these people, oh, yeah. I would say. And this is I where miss... we, we have to. Uh, I mean, I want to talk about Bill Owen a bit, because Bill Owen oh, yeah. is in this as well. Uh, but this and he's is superb we as well. 
He's superb. Yeah, Bill Owen yeah. is someone who most listeners will probably know as Compo in the, I, I think, still the longest running sitcom in history, uh, in British history, at least, Last of the Summer Wine. I recently mm-hmm. saw him in Unfair, an agit prop short uh, designed to protest against Edward Heath's anti-union policies directed by the avant-garde British novelist B.S. Johnson. But, you know, he also played an old man in, in who had a matchbox that used to scare Nora Batty. So a varied <laughs> career, I think, is what we're, we're seeing here. Yeah. And he's in the and comeback. He, and he's in the comeback, and he's good. He's kind of... Um, he would slot very well, because you and I have just been on uh, the Uncut Network's podcast about James Whale, I think if anyone in the 70s was interested in doing a remake of The Old Dark House, he might have been able to do the Karloff part based on this. Indeed. Mm. And indeed, this is essentially a film of The Old Dark House variety. Yeah. Uh, in, in a way which will become more apparent uh, <laughs> as, as we say more about this. Uh complete with potential missing family member. Uh, mm, yeah. yeah. But, but he, he's good, but I, I have cleared the floor to allow you to discuss Sheila Keith's performance. We need to talk Sheila Keith. Yeah. Oh, yes. If if anybody doesn't know who Sheila Keith is, you need mm. to know who Sheila Keith is. Sheila Keith is basically the... She is the star of most of Pete Walker's films. Like, she doesn't always play the main character, but she is the abject star of them. The <laughs> yes. exact scene stealer. She's an older woman who plays these delightfully absurd roles, uh, mm. which are... She delivers these intense performances with such gleeful sadism. It's wonderful. Uh, and she's... She's just an absolute star at playing these characters. But here, she seems to play someone a little bit different to begin with. Uh, Because what we see is she is Mrs. B. And Mrs. B is the kindly old butler lady who, uh, akin to The Haunting, uh, Mm -hmm. she's very similar to said said butler character from The Haunting. Uh, She's there, but... She's kind of weirdly warm to Jack Jones's character. Yeah. Well, I think it's called Nick. I think I, yeah, <laughs> I haven't is. brought it up yet. Uh, yeah. She's weirdly in the know about him. In uh, She knows all of his habits. She knows about how he needs a drink of brandy before he goes to bed at night because she reads all of like the teen gossip magazines uh, <laughs> because she's obsessed with him and obviously this isn't fully where it goes but I'm thinking this is oddly self-aware and almost too self-deprecating for the fact that this man's Jack Jones's uh, peak fan base uh, is this older woman living in a mansion in the countryside. It's it's this grandmother-looking woman uh, who is obsessed with this young uh, crooner sweetheart. Uh, I mean, you've talked a lot about how this film anticipates later horror films, but when Mrs. B is making Nick at home feel at home, all I could think about was misery. Oh, yes. Oh, decidedly so. 
there, mm. there, there's a definite weird obsessed fan quality to her, and even to her husband in it, but particularly yeah. her. And she is a bit odd. During one of the haunting episodes, uh, she comes downstairs and just stares, smiling from the dark, and then walks back up. I don't fully know why she does this. I think she's just fucking with him. Uh, which is mostly what she does. And she's... You start to do something suspicious when you feel like there's an air of malicious compliance here. Because mm. she's all too happy about some of the things which are happening. Uh, she walks in on him uh, basically in the middle of some kind of sexual encounter with this woman who's been following him around and in the plot, and uh, she just like stands there completely nonplussed, smiling and saying, do you need any drinks? Do you need anything? It's just like, no, that's, that's off. <laughs> She's doing something. For record, yeah. Graham, have you by any chance seen the latest season of Inside Number Nine? Oh, I have, yes, yeah. I won't try and spoil anything, but I will make reference to the final episode from this season because uh, by yes. the end, I realized they've got similar twists. <laughs> yeah, that's very true, isn't it? I, I, think... I wonder if it was an intentional. Uh, influence if it was a conscious influence upon it because Reese Smith and Steve Pemberton are massive on that era of British horror. Oh god yeah so. I was going to say every single British horror film of the 1970s I would imagine Shea Smith and Pemberton have watched at some point so Indeed. yes quite possible yeah. yeah and I, I think I love the twist here I think that Shea Smith and Pemberton pull it off better yeah but it's delightful here and all due respect, Shea Smith and Pemberton, you don't have Sheila Keefe. Because she know. is just... Oh, there's something about her. And the way she switches emotions is like Kathy Bates a little. Like, it's yeah. slower and it's more... It's more kind of... It's not kind of on-off shifts in the middle of a scene. But there is a moment where she leaves the room and talks mm. to her husband and there's an instant flip and she begins to cry and it's superb yeah yeah i was not familiar with sheila here i think i have seen other walk films but they was it was so long ago um i saw them on vhs so you know um it's but, I, yeah i really instantly, impressed me here yeah. i instantly fell in love with her performances since i watched frightmare and there's a moment where she drills into someone and blood splashes on her face and mm. completely improvised she licks her lips and i thought that was such a delightful little character quirk and i knew yes. there's something special about her yeah no she's really good um i think the one there's one notable person in the cast that we haven't talked about, at least notable uh, in, in my frame of reference, is Linda, the record company secretary who Nick uh, has a relationship with and who unfortunately yes. catches Harry's eye as well. Um, but that's Pamela Stevenson, or Pamela Stevenson Connolly, as she is now. And she suffers. She suffers in this film. She is she is uh, so much of a victim of the male-dominated record industry in the 70s. 
that like I'm almost like, is the film trying to make a point? Not really, but <laughs> but it's it's quite disturbing. It's, it's not really trying to make a point, but it's also like, I, I think they looked out in getting Stevenson for this part, because I think it does make this aspect of the film seem deeper than it is. I would describe Pamela Stevenson in her early career when she was in Not the Nine O'Clock News and History of the World Part One and things like that, I would describe her as being an implicitly feminist presence in that yes. here, is, here is like a, a, a woman who's in comedies and she's not there to be sort of leched after by the men who do all the funny stuff. She is doing the funny stuff. So you sort of read Linda's character in that light, I think. There's a very interesting scene in which uh, Nick's boss, who is also somewhat notable, uh, and I will return to because of one specific scene, uh, right. one specific scene which I think you already know what I'm talking about, uh, who There's comes in and but yeah, yeah. he comes in and says to Nick, we're thinking of getting you to do a movie score. And mm. uh, and uh, Nick says, I don't feel like I'm able to do that. I can't write music. Uh, and Pamela Stevenson's character says, I can write music, so that's fine. And the boss gives a kind of disgruntled look and then finally settles for, I'm sure you can help him. Uh, it's yes. it's quite a good moment. I kind of wish they'd played with it more, uh, yeah. but it's it's quite a neat little character beat to show some of the, where the prejudices lie. Yeah, definitely. The song that he records is yes. absolutely insane. Isn't it, it is. It is, and it's plot relevant. <laughs> it is plot relevant. Believe <laughs> the lyrics. I tried to copy down some of the lyrics as it went by. I couldn't get them all, but it, it's full of that kind of sort of cod surreal windmills of your mind kind of imagery that easy listening in the 60s had. You know, it's a, a, a man who had a picnic on the moon, the trace yes. of a long forgotten tune, and you just think, what the fuck is this? The central message of the song, the central line of the song, which is what made me realise... They're doing something slightly clever here. Slightly, yeah. maybe. Is what the central line is. You you always wait until I fell asleep. Uh, uh, there's something along those lines. Uh, you wait yeah. until I fell asleep to cry. Uh. And the ghost attacks happen when he's sleeping at night, and they take the form of crying noises from the walls. Yes, they do. And and his manager suggests, his manager has some wonderfully crap explanations for this. He says it's local kids and Nick says, well, the house is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so Webster's manager says, oh, they're cats. <laughs> I don't know any cats that sound like old men joking. <laughs> I mean, maybe I do. Who knows? Cats make weird noises. I just thought you could be the skeptic on one of Danny Robbins's podcasts <laughs> with work like this. Indeed. And but what was the, what was the Webster scene you wanted to mention? Oh, I'm I'm talking about the Webster scene where he does drag. Uh, there is a scene where they turn up. If there is a bizarre red herring scene, there are a lot of red herrings. I think every single character is implied at some point 
to uh, be the killer apart. Yeah. Apart yeah. from Nick, who is somehow not led for us to believe that, or any of the characters within the film, nobody believes that he is possibly the murderer, despite him behaving suspiciously and holding a bloody axe in one scene <laughs> in front of his ex-wife. Yes, in front of his yeah. uh, producer as well. Uh, and uh, but Webster. Webster is a bit funny because the scene we set him up, it's there's just a scene where they make a house call to see him, and he's just doing drag <laughs> in his bedroom, uh, and uh, just doesn't answer the door, and the scene goes by and is never referenced again. But it literally only exists to say, "Ooh, ooh, but he could be the hag." Don't you know yes. he he could be the hag? And this, I also need to fit in the fact that. Have you ever seen a film called Curtains? I never have, no. Curtains is a really brilliant, obscure 80s slasher film. We desperately need a proper UK release. Uh, mm. Absolutely phenomenal stuff about a group of women auditioning for a film role uh, under this horrible Harvey Weinstein-esque boss. Uh, but the killer in that... Uh, wears this horrifying old hag mask and wields a scythe, uh, and right. instantly I was just like, "Oh!" When I saw this, because I was just thinking, "No way!" There's two films which do this so specifically, and sure, sure, the killer doesn't wield a scythe outside of the opening scene, but it's mm. such an image. Uh, I wonder yeah. if the people who made Curtain saw it and thought, "Yeah, we need to make more use of that," uh, because it's wonderful. I think so. Yeah, that that does sound very specific. I mean, the the hag is a sort of combination of two tropes, isn't it? The fact that it is it is very obviously a disguise, and the film oh, yeah. wants you to it wants you to recognise that it's a disguise, otherwise it doesn't work as a whodunit. So it has this element still of psycho in the mix. Oh, uh, there's there's more than that in, in the psycho elements. Well, yeah, we will. Discuss that further on. Yeah, but it, it it also links it back to that hag exploitation cycle of you know, oh, yeah. of sweet Charlotte and things like that. Um, I but it's, I think yeah. I think the strangest moment involving the hag mm. uh, after leaving the uh, corpse to rot in the room, uh, and this is a moment later on when Harry discovers the body. Mm. Uh, the hag comes up and kills him with a knife. And then the hag gets out a bucket and mop and mobs the entire derelict building from top to bottom. And I don't fully know what the deal with that is, aside from just more wacky fuckery. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to believe that the killer is like getting rid of evidence when they've left a dead body to mold <laughs> God knows how long there. <laughs> they instantly decide, now's the time to clean up. It's it's yeah. like, a, to refer, not not to have too many friends from Embrace of a Vampire, but it's like living in a student house. Like, how many pots of mold does it take for you to realise that now is the time to clean up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but just of those things where you don't clean up in a while and suddenly it hits you. Oh, oh. a body out and everything. Maybe it was the rats that did it. Maybe, yeah. 
<laughs> want to keep don't want don't want to you know have the neighbors saying I've got a messy <laughs> messy crack house apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're bringing property prices in the region down <laughs> with this shit. If you if you see someone turning up wearing the, the hag mask and shawl, you know that you know that prices are going down in your area. <laughs> <laughs> Bad neighborhood. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, we, we we have to talk, I think, about who the killer is and what their motivations are, uh, because we've circled Dude. around it a lot. So, Killers, uh, I might kill- add. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's the one thing in the film, because you, you're right to say that as a mystery, it's set up surprisingly efficiently. There's a lot of red hemmings. It's quite sort of craftily done. You have the additional thread of whether Nick is a reliable witness to any of this stuff because certainly everyone believes he's going crazy. <laughs> Nurse told him he's mental. They say it to his face. <laughs> everyone <laughs> says you're crazy. I don't care if you see some ghosts, you're crazy. <laughs> I don't care if you found your wife's head in the basement <laughs> in a hat box like Disney Haunted Mansion style. <laughs> Yes. Oh, we man. didn't even have the materials for a hat box in the house. <laughs> they didn't have any paper. Nope. <laughs> a real plot point in this film, I might have to add, they didn't have the materials to make a hat box in the house. <laughs> it's something which is explicitly said. But that's the odd thing, isn't it? Everything is very fastidiously set up except for the killer's motive which is sort of pulled out of nowhere as far as I could tell. There's a brief reference earlier on when Sheila Keith is asked if she has any children uh, uh, or if there's anyone else in the house because of the meat woman. Uh, yeah. And uh, she responds saying, no, no, we married in later life. Uh, we, But there's a slight air of extra sadness to it when she says that. Yeah. And she's like, there's no one else in the house. No, we can't have children. We married in later life. There's no way. Uh, So when it gets revealed that she and her husband, uh, Mr. and Mrs. B, uh, have been behind uh, the murders and also uh, an extensive period of gaslighting uh, in the house, uh, then Sheila Keefe... Oh, she... She does. She delivers what might be. Look, I know it comes kind of out of nowhere. She presents what might be the greatest scene in the film simply because it's Sheila Keith. Yeah. Simply because it's her, where she talks about the real reason why she has uh, him in the house. Magazines, all this knowledge of his work. Yes. It's because his. Well. Her daughter hmm. was a mega fan, and when he got married, uh, she killed herself. And now these parents have this vendetta against him. Uh, yes. To and now they're going to murder him, but they have a very specific plan. Uh, it's very clear. Uh, it's noticeable that uh, Mr. B has been the one going around in the hag mask. Why has he been going around in a hag mask? Who cares? It's cool. Uh, But he's also a little (laughs) (laughs) overexcitable. There's a bit where he swings an axe uh, 
because uh, they both have axes during this scene and corner him in a corner of the house, which, by the way, I have to mention that this house looks extraordinarily like uh, the one that I filmed Slaughter Alley in. It's oh, the film I'm in, which is meant to come out. And I was confused by the layout being essentially the same for a lot of it, but it's not the same house. I had to check. Although, weirdly, the dining room in that house uh, also looked like the one from Frightmare. So <laughs> the connections come together. Uh, yeah. But... It's notable uh, that the husband takes a swing at Jack Jones, and she says, not yet, <laughs> I'm not finished. And she goes on this brilliant monologue, like, have you ever seen a child die from strychnine poisoning? It's, yes. oh, it's phenomenal. And it's, there's some really good character details in that, too. I love that she's talking about him having this dirty stage act and it it tells you so much about mrs b's sensibility because there is no way that you can imagine jack jones being like a sort of outrageous jim morrison style figure. oh yeah and i i have this suspicion all the way through because having not seen house of whipcord and house of mortal sin there's Mm. i have a feeling that she typically in those films plays these conservative moralistic types with kind of this firebrand of vengeance upon anything unnatural and perverse so seeing her a massive fan over uh, this pop music that the youngins love these days had me slightly suspicious and now you see her like slut shaming his dead wife and (laughs) kind of oh my it's I, then you see it in there, and then she shouts, kill the bastard. And this scene makes me want to love the movie, because just yeah. Sheila Keith suddenly dropping all pretenses and shouting, kill the bastard, to her husband, is <laughs> it brings back the delights of her performance as a, a manic yet strangely polite cannibal uh, <laughs> in uh, Frightmare, who like licks crispy ashen skin off a fire poker. She brings <laughs> that derangement of the scene. I mean, immediately her clumsy fucking husband axes her in the chest and she dies. <laughs> she drops fucking dead. <laughs> immediately, in comic fashion. And it's quite sad because then, then the husband just gives up on trying to do any more murders. Uh, and then, <laughs> then we find the shrine. Then there's the yeah. shrine. Well, before that, uh, Jack Jones picks up an axe covered in blood in front of a bleeding elderly woman who was supposedly his butler, uh, and is a suspect. And he is a suspect in this, by the way. Uh, and his boss walks in and says, "Oh, morning, morning. What's that? You got an axe? Oh, <laughs> no, nothing wrong with that. Go upstairs, why don't you? And when there's a I missing mean... woman." <laughs> Once again, this guy is a, a manager in the British music industry in the 1970s. Yeah. He has a protocol for situations like this. I mean, they explicitly... Uh, there's a quite an interesting moment as well earlier on. Uh, like, I keep thinking of really interesting parts of this film. Like, Even though I'm mostly not that infused with it, I was mostly just not very infused with what the film chose to prioritise in regards to Jack Jones's character and yeah. the slightly questionable romance. <laughs> but <laughs> there's a scene where he's just got out of hospital following his mental breakdown, and he listens mm. to himself on the radio, one of his songs being played, and they say, congratulations for getting out of hospital with your bad back. 
And yeah, it's, yeah. it's an interesting little thing about the PR cover-up here. Uh, I think it's quite interesting uh, and yeah, says a lot. It, it, it's full of good little details like that, even though uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that the sort of it, that it works fully as a film, but it has oh, these no. wonderful little granular details of British life and the British music industry in its time. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there is, and so he hears Jack Jones's character Nick. He hears basically his love interest throughout this. Uh, goes missing on one mm. of the nights, and nobody really seems to care, uh, as of the wife beforehand. Probably not intentional commentary, but it's it's quite it's something. There. Yeah. Uh, and he hears a screaming still in the house, even though it's been revealed that the ghost appearances uh, were mostly just bizarre gaslighting feet mystery meat. Yeah. Uh, but then he hears screaming from inside the wall. Uh, and yeah. this tapping, which he follows in very, very inconsistent sound quality, uh, up to the top, and then Jack Torrance style smashes through a wall uh, yeah. with the axe he's holding, and he finds holy fuck the bizarre shrine bedroom of uh, the daughter, uh, who is a dead skeleton on the bed, uh, <laughs> as it is revealed that, in fact, they weren't planning originally on taking an axe swing at him, uh, they were planning on bricking him into the house <laughs> and making yes. him part of the scene so that they could provide him to their daughter. What the fuck? <laughs> That's good, yeah. It, it's sort of like if Edgar Allan Poe had written that episode of I'm Alan Partridge where he meets his biggest fan. That's it's the midpoint between those. Yes, it, it's. I was looking at this. It's strangely similar to scenes in the numerous other films, often of the Italian variety. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't help but think of uh, the preserved dining room on Christmas Day from Deep Red. Oh, oh yeah, uh, even yeah. more so uh, from the obscure American slasher film Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, uh, with the woman who keeps her headless husband's body uh, in a, an attic room, uh, kind of where his body is a skeleton, but his head is pickled in a jar at the end of the bed. All of these weird <laughs> shrine scenes. It, that's a phenomenally weird film. Well, uh, that's directed. Anyone who follows me on Letterboxd will, uh, may know that uh, I've been thinking about Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker recently because it's from the director of Beach Blanket Bingo. Is it now? <laughs> oh, the yeah. beach movies make their way, their way into this. Did Pete oh, Walker yeah. ever do a beach movie? He didn't. He had lots of early sex comedies, but there wasn't really a beach movie scene in Britain. His first film was called oh. For Men Only, uh, which was also known as I Like Birds. <laughs> was uh, it now? That is very Pete Walker. Uh, there is a fabulous I... moment in terms of him alternating the sex comedies and the slashes where his 1970 film Cool It Carol uh, was followed up immediately by Die Screaming Marianne. <laughs> <laughs> Messages, I think. I, uh... <laughs> I 
Carol is allowed to call it, but, but not Marianne. Marianne just gets to die. <laughs> There's, there's some great titles in there. Uh, weirdly, yeah. I think that uh, the comeback, though, obviously it has its Mrs. Bates moment, and I'm not yeah. talking about the meat lady, although, <laughs> uh, is, uh, bizarrely, uh, two years beforehand, uh, Pete Walker released a film called Schizo. So quite frankly, <laughs> I'm not sure you can get more blatant than that. Having not, not seen really. the film, having not seen the film, I can't mm. confirm. However, you never know you never know I, with yeah, P.T. Walker. I don't, I don't think anyone is going to sue you for saying the director of the comeback has probably been influenced by Psycho. I think <laughs> legally that is a very safe statement. I, I am pretty me. certain he has been. <laughs> I, I have a, a distinct suspicion. Yes. <laughs> but, so yes. is there anything else that we haven't mentioned before we round it off? Because well, there's a couple we of things. Some territory. <laughs> we need to talk about the ending. We need to yeah. talk about the very ending, uh, yeah. where everything's seemingly resolved, uh, and then standing outside the house trying to figure out things. Uh, Nick looks up at the window and sees his wife's ghost. <laughs> yeah, it's implying mm, that you know she really was trying to warn him and it wasn't all gaslighting by the Or he's lost it. Oh, he's mad. Yeah, there is that. Yeah. Either it's possible. Maybe she was the hamburger hamburger lady. Maybe that was her. But he just, he gets asked if he sees anything. He's like, nope, nope. They'll they're gonna send they're gonna send me to they're gonna send me to the mental hospital if I say yeah you see my wife uh, nobody just I... my wife and then it ends on a magic eye picture pretty much because it has the weirdest transition to black I have ever seen uh, where it's just like <laughs> fuck you seventies audiences enjoy the eye strain when we move out this. <laughs> Yeah, I can see him being motivated to not talk about that vision or ghost or whatever because you do not want to wake up in a bed with the Jim Chadwick hovering over you. Got potty again, have you? <laughs> Indeed. Now I need to know what connection you thought I was talking about between this and Embrace of the Vampire. Well, it 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 occurred to me when you said this that this is the second film in a row we've seen with uh, a a villain who can effectively change gender. It's true. It it yeah. is essentially true. Uh, I. It must be said the process in the comeback is slightly cruder than the one in <laughs> Embrace of the Vampire. But yeah. It's still there. Potentially, potentially, it's just like just standing there. It's and now I am become Joan Crawford, didn't destroy her with face. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's. I am. I am fascinated with. Just, I, I really don't know what the decision was to make the killer grandma's off her meds again, but I am. I'm really into it. I'm re- yeah. I I do have a definite soft spot for the exploitation genre. Perhaps exploitative, sure, but they give an opportunity for all the older actresses to just completely go off their shit. And yeah. it's it's delightful, I think, particularly with Sheila Keith in Frightmare, where she just 
gets to completely say, oh, you expect me to play this this nice quiet role because I'm older? Nah, nah, I'm gonna eat brains. I'm gonna eat brains. <laughs> I'm gonna have a family dinner eating brains. There is a family reunion and they eat someone's brain. It happens in that film. It's a wonderful movie. That's probably a spoiler. I don't care. Watch Frightmare. That's that's a lesson of this. Watch Frightmare. It might be a spoiler, but let's face it, if you're going to get people to watch it, you might as well give them the goods. It is, yeah. Sheila Keith. Sheila Keith eats someone's brain. It's great. There we go. That's the film. She, she gets them in post. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you can uh, donate to our Patreon where you get a monthly bonus episode of this very show. Robin has been on a very memorable one of those about dot com for murder. <laughs> the greatest film ever made, dot com for murder. Of course, yeah. Where Ruined was it my life. Titan Sound Top One Hundred again. <laughs> I I would be so tempted to add it if anybody ever. I've already said that if anybody mistrusts me to do it, if there's a chance I'll put Lair of the White Worm on there, <laughs> which is a film I legitimately adore, by the way. Mm, uh, but yeah. I would be tempted to just drop something like Dot Com for Murder on there and say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what was it? Uh, How many Kareen put the entirety of TikTok as one of his choices? So quite <laughs> frankly, it wouldn't be the weirdest thing that someone has suggested for Sight and Sound. No, definitely not. Um, but as well as that, you also get a load of uh, other wonderful things, uh, written reviews of classic cult TV, reviews of Asian films that lack a UK distributor, our other podcast uh, from the video aisle, which looks back at the entirety of cult horror and science fiction franchises. And last night, a podcast about everything we've watched in the preceding month. That's all at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show. We'll be back with the second of our free Halloween episodes in a fortnight's time. Until then, I've been Graham. And I've been Robin. And we'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) 